Amen. Good morning, family. You can get your Bibles out and open to 2 Kings chapter 4, page 424 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of Scripture, 2 Kings up in front of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Then you're going to come to 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. If you get to Chronicles, you went too far, back up. 2 Kings chapter 4, week 3 of our series where we're talking about the distinctive nature of faith in the God of the Bible. We're talking about various attributes that make following Jesus, that make us distinct. And the, uh, today we're going to talk about the distinctive God who reveals himself in Scripture. And we're... Uh, few more weeks will be in this series, and then we'll go back into 1 Corinthians, and we'll work our way through the next section of that letter. Happy Mother's Day to all of you that are here, and to all the moms joining us online. We're grateful for you, thankful to be able to celebrate Mother's Day together in God's house. Let's pray and ask Him to help us as we study this morning. Father, we thank you for this moment, this time that you have ordained and set apart for us to worship you through your word. We thank you for your truthfulness, Lord, and your willingness to speak to us and meet us where we are. And so on this day when we celebrate the moms among us, we thank God for each of them. We celebrate the moms not with us. And we thank God for them as well. We thank you that you, through your perfect wisdom, knew to make us in your image and in doing so gave us the ability to have memories that we can cherish those who are not with us. Lord, for those who today brings heartache or pain, we Lift them to you and say, God, touch and bless and move and bring peace. And for those yet to be a mom, we, we say, Lord, thank you for putting a good desire in a heart. And so, Lord, today, regardless of what this day brings, relationally or culturally, what matters is what does it bring spiritually? What is the opportunity before us this day in your word in this moment? That if you, the God of the universe, choose to speak to us, what might we hear? How might our lives be changed in this very moment by the breath of the God who spoke all of this into creation? So, Lord, we pray for ears to hear that your Holy Spirit would minister here and that he would give us hearts to receive and that we might be courageous to obey that which you have spoken and that you'd get all the glory, praise, and honor for only you are due. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us to begin by thinking about how we all by nature, just our nature is to avoid pain. We 
No one had to teach us to avoid struggle, trials, pain. None of us run into difficulty. We don't do that. And that's good and, and understandable and normal. But what happens when you bring that reality into another reality, a reality where there's a culture around you that is diametrically opposed to the things that you believe, that is bent on making it difficult for you to believe the things that you believe, to hold to the convictions that you say that you hold to? What happens when your desire to avoid pain intersects with a culture that's going to make it very painful to be faithful? What if you were in a culture where to follow God, it wasn't just difficult. You didn't face simply rejection, but you faced persecution. Persecution such that it made it impossible or nearly impossible for you to even provide for your family. What would you do? Would you be faithful or would you retreat? What if you entered into what the Bible often refers to as days of affliction? Days where it's so hard, it seems so hopeless, it's so beyond your power, it's beyond your ingenuity, it's beyond your ability to comprehend a way through or out, and it's, it's just that hard. You see, everyone believes in the sovereignty of God when life is going according to plan. Who, who believes in the sovereignty of God when life is coming unraveled? When persecution is bearing down upon you? When people you love are suffering at the hands of persecution because of the very God that's in control of all things? What do you do then? What happens when that situation arises is that we start asking questions like, God, why me? God, where are you? God, what's going on? And what's going to come to bear is, what do we really know about the God that we serve? I mean, who, who really is he? Really? I mean, when you are, when it's life and death, what do you know to be true about him? And what if we let the Bible 
Not the culture, not our upbringing, not anybody else, but we let the Bible speak for itself. We let the Bible reveal to us the character and the nature of the God of whom it speaks. Here's what we would find out. We would find out, if you have your listening guide, that every affliction comes with a message from the heart of God. You see, if God is sovereign, and He is, then if you or me are in a time of affliction, then God's aware of that. And God could stop that. That creates a problem for a lot of people. I want to introduce you this Mother's Day to a lady that it didn't create a problem for. I mean, it created a problem, but the problem, as great as it was, as unimaginable as it is, her understanding of the God that she served was greater. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let's look together at what God's Word says. There was a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. She cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the, cre- and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. Now let's think about this predicament that she's in. Here we have a widow. We don't know her name. We don't know much about her, but we know enough about her. We know that she is in a terrible situation, that she's lost everything. She's about to lose her two sons. We know that according to the law, the creditors had every right to come and take her sons as slaves to pay off the debt that she was unable to pay. But we also know that life wasn't always this way. We know that there was a time in the past when she was married to a servant of God and that God blessed her and her husband with two sons and that apparently there were better days. Life was maybe not perfect, but certainly better than it is today. But now she finds herself alone and without a husband in a situation that she can't really see her way out of. It certainly is her days of affliction. Now, oftentimes, I hear people talk about this passage and say things like, here's a man who was a man of God but who left his wife in a terrible predicament as if he somehow didn't plan for or wasn't diligent or wise in his preparation, and so he left his family destitute upon his death. It sounds good, it's just false. It lacks the understanding of what's going on. What's the context of this passage? This isn't a story that just dropped out of the sky. It's a story that actually happened, and it happened in an actual time, in an actual situation with actual circumstances. 
You see, it happened in the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And it happened in a time when the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, had already overrun the land. And so what happened was, is that her husband, who was a faithful servant of God, found himself and his family living in a culture where it was almost impossible to serve God. The persecution was so great that there were all sorts of uh, restrictions and afflictions and, and, and you know, penalties laid upon anyone who was crazy enough to admit that they were a follower of Yahweh God in a land that was filled with Baal worship. And so here she is. She's probably been suffering for some time. Her and her husband suffered, but they remained faithful. Finally, he succumbed to death, and the Lord took him home, and she's left with these two boys. And the debt of the persecution of her faithfulness is left upon her. And there's no retirement program. There's no 401K. It's not like she can file bankruptcy. There's no welfare system. There's no life insurance. There's no one there's no one's going to help her bail her out. There's no safety net. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where circumstances have come upon you in such a way that they leave you uh, just bewildered and hopeless? Maybe financially? You've been in a situation where you can't bear to check the mail because you know it's just more bills you can't afford to pay. More letters from people with threats you know there's nothing you can do about. See, some of you know that feeling. Maybe you're feeling that today. Maybe you've made some moral decision and the consequences have created a circumstance that has left you looking like you're going to lose everything, everything that means something to you. Maybe it already has cost you relationship with the people that once meant the most to you. I don't know. But I know this woman is in a terrible situation. And I know that God is sovereign. And I know that all of us either have been, are, or will be in days of affliction sooner or later. Now, it's not like this woman hasn't done everything that she can do. It appears to me that by the time we're introduced to her, she sold everything she has. Her house is empty. She probably sold all of her furniture. She just has these two boys and this desperate situation. And she's going to teach us some things this morning. The first thing she's going to teach us is about dependence. Dependence. You see, you can hear the desperation in her voice by what she says. She says to the man of God, my husband who served the Lord is dead. It's not like Elisha doesn't know who her husband was. 
but she's just reminding herself of who he was. She's reminding herself of what he stood for and what he believed. And in her declaration, she's declaring her dependence upon Elijah and the God he serves to meet her need. You see, she's saying, where, where are you, God? I need you. I am dependent upon you. I have no other option. I have no other hope. You see, when it comes to dependence, there's always this one dead giveaway that lets you know when somebody is truly dependent. Because when, when, you're, when you reach desperation and dependence, pride dies. So long as me and you still care what other people think, we're not, we're not at the end of our rope yet. It's when somebody realizes that their problems are far bigger, their circumstances are far more grave than what they care about what you think about them. It always astonishes me at how people facing the disintegration of their own family would rather keep their stuff private than cry out for help. It's a shame. But not this lady. Not this lady. Now, it brings up a good question, and the question is, well, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you have no resources, when you have no ability or knowledge or, or strength within you, when you cannot address the situation that you're facing, what do you do? That's a good question. What do you do? Because you do something, and what is it? And what should you do? And I think the first thing you should do is remember that when you don't know what to do, God does. See, He always knows what to do. And so you may feel absolutely helpless and totally just dependent and, and, and unable to do anything for yourself. But remember that God knows what to do. He knows what to do. There's never been a millisecond of your life that God doesn't know what to do. Do you know that? You've never taken a breath and God has not known what the next best step for you to take is. You know that's true? Do you know that there's never been a moment in your life when God didn't want you to know His will for your life? Think about that. That moment has never happened. No matter how desperate you feel, no matter how far away from God you may think you are, there has never been a moment that God didn't know what the next best thing for you to do is and that He didn't want you to know what it is too. Now, what else do we do when we don't know what to do? What is this? What, what can we discern 
from this situation? Well, here's what I always say. When you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. You see, I've never talked to anyone who said, Pastor, I don't know what to do. And I say, hold on. You know something. Let's focus on what we do know. I know there's a thousand things we don't know. I know there's, there's a hundred questions that we want answers to that we don't have. But what do we know? Let's focus on what we know. We know that the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that we have unlimited access to the throne room of grace. So we can pray, right? We know we can pray. What else do we know? We know we can read God's Word. The Bible says that His Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Isn't that what it says? So we know something. We know we can pray. We know we can read the Bible. And we know if we do those things and we let God shape and build what we know about his character and nature and not make up in our mind what we want to be true about him but we base our belief on what the Bible says about him then here's what we'll eventually know as well is that my struggles are God's opportunity to do the work that can't be accomplished in comfort you see so many of the best things in our life that God wants to do cannot be done in comfort they can't be. See, God, He wants to stretch our faith. He wants to build our devotion. He wants to develop us. And how is He going to do that in comfort? You see, if you want to know what God's up to, if you, if you struggle, so many people struggle to uh, discern what God's up to in their life. And the reason that they do that is because they don't know His agenda. What's God's agenda? God has an agenda in your life and my life. And it's very simple, and it's all throughout the Bible. It's told to us in a thousand different ways. For example, in Romans chapter 8, the Bible says, For those He foreknew, He predestined us to be conformed into the image of His Son. It's that simple. God's agenda in your life is to conform you into the image of His Son. Now, here's my question. Is it possible for you to look like Jesus without suffering? Is it possible? It's impossible, isn't it? The only way you and I can look like Jesus is to go through days of affliction. That's His agenda. You know what the Bible doesn't do? The Bible doesn't say, well, how do you feel about the agenda? What's your opinion of the agenda? Why don't you write a response to the agenda? Submit it. There's a complaint box. You can fill out a card. Tell us all about what you feel about God's agenda and put it in the box. And God will take up the matter at a predestined time in the future. Probably at your death, but, you know, that's between you and him. 
So she teaches us about dependence. The next thing she teaches us about is obedience. Obedience. Now, we can see the dependence and the desperation, but then we get to verse 2. So Elisha said to her, well, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in this house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Now, Elisha asked her two questions. Two questions. What do you need and what do you have? What do you need and what do you have? She needed everything. And she perceived that she had nothing. Then he said, verse 3, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. Hmm. So from this jar, apparently, is going to come the power and the provision of God. And I would submit to you this morning that if you are a child of God, you have this jar in your heart. That's what the Bible says, in your heart. Jesus said in John chapter 7, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, not as he thinks, not as the culture taught him, not as he made up in his own head, but as the Bible said, that person who believes that way, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? What is Jesus referring to? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who will flow out of our heart with regeneration, with guidance, with wisdom, with understanding. And so God is saying that a child of God will never encounter a problem that the Holy Spirit can't solve. But the key is, it's he who believes as the Scripture says. That's where it gets derailed for so many people. Now notice about these vessels that she's to collect. Notice it didn't matter what size. It doesn't matter what shape or condition they're in. But there are some qualifications to the vessel. Now I want you to consider that most people read this narrative... And here's what they think. They think the problem the widow has is the jar is too empty. But that's not the problem. The problem, according to the text, is that the jar is too full. It's too full. You see that? What are the qualifications? The first qualification for the vessel is it has to be empty. It has to be empty. The prophet specifically said, go and get empty vessels. 
And before anything happens, you got to pour out. You know why that is? It's because God only fills empty vessels. Do you know that? That's how he works. You see, God fills us when we come to him empty. God doesn't fill a vessel that comes to him with their own agenda. That's not how that works. No. You can't come to him with your preconceived ideas about what ought to happen or what, what's the way it should happen. Or You see, oftentimes people aren't filled with what God wants to fill them with is because they're too full of themselves. Too self-confident, too self-reliant. For God to work. Here's how the great Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, A full Christ is for empty sinners and for empty sinners only. It is not our emptiness but our fullness which can hinder the flow of free grace. You see that? Here's how Jesus says the same thing. It's reverse psychology. He says, My grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. If you want strength from God, you come in weakness. If you want fullness from God, you come in emptiness. But when you come half full, that's a problem. What's it full of? The vessel had to be empty. What's the second qualification for the vessel? It had to be clean. It had to be clean. And why? It's because God only uses clean vessels. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says God uses clean vessels. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 20, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work. Now, I want you to notice something about that verse. Do you notice whose responsibility it is? You see, God does the cleaning, but it's our responsibility to get the vessel clean. You see... It says, if anyone cleanses himself. Now, how does that work? Well, God cleanses us from sin by the blood of his son Jesus shed on the cross on our behalf as the payment or propitiation of our sin. Yet it says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself. How does that work? Well, at the moment of salvation, according to 1 John chapter 1, verses 7, verses 9, that we are... In the moment of salvation, clean. That all of our sin has been clean and is now white as snow. But then we live in a culture that as we walk through life, we're defiled. And so the Bible says it is then incumbent upon us to confess our sin. Because if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to do what? Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But what if we don't confess our sin? Well, then we're not clean. God uses clean vessels. 
empty vessels. God provides the blood. He provides the means of atonement and forgiveness. But it's incumbent upon us to activate that. So she teaches us about dependence. She teaches us about obedience. And then thankfully, this morning, she teaches us about abundance. Abundance. And this is where the story takes a turn for the way, way, way better. So verse 4 says, And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, and then pour it onto all those vessels. Pour it out into those vessels and set aside the full ones. You know, as I was studying this week, I kept getting hung up on verse 4. And I kept thinking about, shut the door. Shut the door. Why does, why does God tell her to shut the door? Why does the prophet say shut the door? Wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it make sense for her to open up all the windows and all the blinds and all the doors so the whole neighborhood could come and swarm around her house and look in and watch what's about to happen? Wouldn't that make sense? Doesn't that sound what we ought to do? Why don't we do that? Why don't we, why don't we get everybody there to witness what's about to happen so they can all see how awesome God is? But God says, nope, shut the door. What does it make you think of when God says, shut the door? Prayer. makes me think of prayer it makes me think of it makes me think of how people react to prayer these days and how people see a lot of times people go through things and they don't they don't ask for prayer because they don't want to bother anybody but what's really the thing is is they just don't want anybody to know what's going on with them so they just keep it to their self it's just their own personal little thing. That's what they do. Do we believe in the power of prayer? I mean, really, do we? What hinders us from believing in prayer? See, you know what happens? In your prayer life. You know why you struggle to pray? It's not that you don't want to pray. It's not that you don't believe in prayer. It's not that you don't think you ought to pray more. But you don't. And you know why? It's because of what you, at the core, believe is true about God. You see, if you believed at the core of your being... That God is a God who absolutely loves to sling open the window of heaven and pour out blessings on his children. You'd pray like crazy. If you believed that God's heart was not judgmental towards you, but was loving towards you and desired what was best for you, even when 
You don't deserve it. See, if you believed that about God, you'd pray like crazy. If you believe what the Bible says about God, I think you pray like crazy. You know, Jesus said in Luke 12, Don't fear, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Doesn't that make you want to pray? It's his good pleasure. You know what he loves to do? Give you the kingdom. That's what he loves to do for his children. He loves to do that. What about David? When he got to the end of his life and he looked back across the span of his life. And here's what he says in Psalm 37. He says, I've been young and now I'm old. Yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen that. Nor his children begging bread. He's like, I've seen a lot of things in my life, but here's what I haven't seen. I have not seen God's people forsaken by God. I've seen God's people deserve to be forsaken, but I haven't seen God forsaken them. I've seen a lot of bad things happen, but I haven't seen them begging for bread. Somehow God always provides for his people. He always does that. And yet we don't pray. And yet we're... Worried about what other people think. You see, I'm not saying that you can understand the character and nature of God in such a way as you'll always understand what God is doing. That's never going to happen. God baffles me all the time. He doesn't live in my box or your box or anybody's box. He does things that I can't explain, didn't see coming all the time. But you see, I don't have to understand what God is doing to know who He is. Because there's something more powerful and more important than understanding what He's doing. Here's how I say it. There are times when I can't trace God but there's never a time when I can't trust Him. You see, here's what I know. I know God's trustworthy. I know God's faithful. That's what David knew in Psalm 37. Listen, I may not know when He's coming, what He's going to do, how He's going to do it. I don't know all that, but I know I can trust Him. I know I can depend on Him. I know that He is faithful. That's what I know. And I know that he's good. You see, the Bible says that blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You see, that's the thing about our culture. Is we live in a culture that is bent on knowing. And so we want to know. And one of the terrible ramifications of living in a modern technological time like we do is the devastating impact it's having on faith. You see, everything you want to know is at your fingertips. Except for the most important thing that you can't know. You can't Google that. It doesn't work that way. You can't learn it in school. Science can't teach it to you. 
No? Now, I want you to notice, look at the beginning of verse 5. So she went from him and she shut the door behind her. You see that? So, so let's just notice what happened. So Elisha says something to her that seems odd, to say the least. Take this little pitiful jar that you have that has a little bit of oil in it, and I want you to go into your house, and I want you to take your sons with you, and then I want you to close the door behind you. This is what I want you to do. And the next thing that happens is she does it. Now, have you, have you ever noticed in the Bible that there's a, there's a trend in Scripture? And it goes like this. Whenever you find a person in the Bible who is seeking to obey God, there's always a crowd of people around trying to distract them from doing so. You ever notice that? You notice in Mark chapter 10 when blind Bartimaeus is there begging on the side of the road and the giant parade is coming into town because Jesus is there and there's people everywhere and Bartimaeus hears the, feels the ground rumbling and hears the crowd and he gets up and he starts hollering, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And suddenly all the people around him start saying, hey, be quiet, keep it down. It's a parade. It's not a library. It's a parade. But somehow, yeah, no one cares what he's doing as long as he sits there with his mouth shut, blind and destitute. The minute he starts calling out to God, suddenly everyone has an opinion about that. You ever experienced that? Hello? Am I the only one? The minute you seek to obey God, Critics come out of the woodwork. And they're like, now slow down. We don't need to get radical. Maybe we should just pray about this a little bit longer. You know, the Bible says there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. So let's go find the ten dumbest people we know and get their opinion about this. Maybe someone will agree with me that you ought not do it. And then we'll have a biblical response not to do it. Isn't that how it always happens? Yeah. Because, see, eventually... You wash up on my doorstep, and I say to you, you know, you're crying, I'm crying, it's a disaster, and I say to you, who did you talk to about this? And you go, well, this idiot, and this dummy, and this moron, and... Bad idea. What about Luke chapter 7? Remember, Jesus gets invited to eat at the Pharisee's house, and he's there eating, and the woman comes in with the alabaster flask, and she, she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with oil and wash them with her tears. Remember that? And what immediately happens? Immediately, the Pharisees start saying, well, I mean, if he knew what kind of woman that was touching him, he wouldn't be doing that. Now, suddenly, everyone is concerned about who's touching Jesus. 
A few minutes ago, they were trying to stone him. A few minutes later, they're going to try to do it again. But, but, oh no, we can't have this woman touching him. You see? There's always critics when you seek to obey God. That's good to know because that's probably why God wants you to shut your door. Because there's no critics in your prayer closet. If they're all if there are, call me because I want to see that. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Don't you know when you pray, go into your room? And when you have shut the door, you pray to your Father who is in a secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You see how that works? You see the principle? You see the principle there? Private devotion comes before public demonstration. You see, when you see this great manifestation of God, when God moves in a mighty way in somebody's life, that is evidence number one. That didn't start publicly. It started privately. That's where that started. God says you go in the closet and you shut the door. And then... I'll do things. I'll demonstrate power based on your private devotion. And when God demonstrates power, it's amazing. You know, God's demonstrating His power in our fellowship right now. Do you know that? It's not something new. He does it all the time. And it's amazing. I told the first service, I said, look, you're about to go to community group. Here's, I mean, you know, maybe your teacher would hate me for this, but what you should do is as soon as the service lets out, you should, you should go find Philip or Pam Blaylock and you ought to grab one of them and say, hey, can you come to my community group and tell me what God just did in your life? Because after you hear that story, you'll know God's doing miracles in our fellowship. Or you could get Linda and Jimmy Parrott. You could get them. Mr. Jimmy was... Uh, had to go in for a very serious surgery. And so it just so happened that before he went in, they needed to get some paperwork in order because it was serious. And so they came by the church to get the paperwork in order, notarized. And it just so happened that they needed three witnesses. And it just so happened at the exact time that they came up there to get the papers notarized that the three pastors were in a staff meeting together. So it just so happened that we came out and witnessed the papers so they could get notarized. And so while we were there, we just put our hands on Mr. Jimmy and we, and we prayed for him. Then he went to the hospital and they did the surgery and they found a bunch of tumors. 
And they put the medicine in there that lights up when it touches cancer and it lit up like a Christmas tree. And they said, we have bad news. You're full of cancer and we're going to have to do a surgery and get that cancer out of you. And so two days later, he goes back to the surgeon and they cut him open to go in and take the cancer out. And the doctor comes out to Miss Linda and says, ma'am, there's no cancer in your husband. Isn't it interesting? Some of you, when you hear that, do you know what you think? You think of some rational way that that happened. Anything to not believe the miraculous power of God. Why? Because it makes you uncomfortable. It freaks you out. You know, he's still a, a way maker and a miracle worker. He still is. And he does it around here all the time. I think the reason that we're in the shape that we're in is because reason and logic are crippling faith in our country. See, God is very reasonable and He's completely logical. And He has no problem with you bringing your reason or your logic to the table. But when you can't see beyond your reason or your logic, it's a problem. You see, this widow... She can see beyond. She goes in, verse 5, shuts the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now, I just want you to notice here that there's no debate, there's no discussion, there's no dispute, there's no... Listen, this is how this goes down now. When she tells her sons, bring the vessels into the house, moms, you got kids? You already know how this goes down. You got two boys. What do you think's happening? You got boys. You ever had a son? Mom, what are we doing? Mom, why are we doing this? Mom, this doesn't make any sense. Mom, this is crazy. Mom, we're carrying these in here. Mom, 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 mom. Because they're asking five million questions. And you know what mom's doing? She's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I just do it. Just do it. Just do it. I know it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. You can't reason it out or logic it out. All she knows is that that's what God said, and so that's what she's doing. And the question is, why does she do that? And the answer is, because she believes God. That's what you do when you believe God. When you believe God, you do what God says. It's not complicated. Here it is, moms. The greatest advice ever given in the Bible was given by a mom. Do you know that? The greatest advice... The, the verse that contains the ultimate piece of wisdom was spoken by a mom. And it should be on everyone's wall. It should be written on everything you could find. It should be your goal and mantra as a parent to instill into your children. 
It's in John chapter 2 when Jesus is at the wedding of Cana. And there's all this confusion about what's going to happen and what are we going to do and how are we going to get out of this predicament. And mom, Mary, speaks up and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. Bam, there it is. You want to know? Whatever she, whatever he says, you do that. If you don't understand it, you do that. If you don't know how it's going to work, you do that. If you don't, whatever it is, just do that. Just do what God says. You see, God tests us by our faith, but he measures us by obedience. Obedience. You see, the Bible teaches that faith without obedience is dead. That doesn't work. Obedience is the visible manifestation of invisible faith. Without obedience, there's no faith. We sort of believe that somehow we can have faith in God and not obey Him. That is impossible according to the Bible. It's impossible. Jesus said in John 14, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. But what we want to do is we want to redefine love. We want, to, we, want, we want to make love what we think it is, but that's not what the Bible says. See, love is what God says it is because God is love, right? And so Jesus says, well, if you have my commandments and you keep them, then you love me. Do you know what the very next verse says? And then my Father will love you, and I will as well. There's no... There's no faith apart from obedience. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, you know, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only those who do the will of God. Obedience. Obedience. That is the marker of genuine faith. And if you only obey what you understand, if you only obey what you can reason out in your head, then you're going to be in a world of trouble. And your story, if it were in 2 Kings chapter 4, would be very short. Your spouse died, your kids were in jeopardy, you were starving, and then you died. The end. Now, how does God provide? Look at verse 6. Now, it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he, and he said to her, well, there is not another vessel, so the oil ceased. So there's only one reason that the oil stops flowing, and that is we run out of vessels, right? So there's no limit to the oil. There's only a limit to the vessels. So long as you have empty vessels, the Oil keeps flowing. You got the metaphor? You see the picture? Now, what is the ministry responsibility of every single saved person? 
to pour out whatever God pours into you on somebody else. And so long as you pour out what God puts into you, God promises to refill it. And it will never stop unless you stop pouring it out. So we live to pour out what God continually replenishes. But the minute we stop pouring it out, he stops filling. Because he, he only fills empty vessels. Then she came and she told the man of God and she said, verse 7, well, go. He said, go and sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons live on the rest. Hmm. So he meets her immediate need and he makes provision for her in the future. Do you see how God does that through his abundance? But so oftentimes when we're in need, we're too ashamed to be dependent. We don't believe in such a way as to make it conducive to go in and shut the door behind us because we don't see God as a God who delights in blessing His children. We get hung up on what God says because we can't reason it or understand it, so we hesitate or pause or just Disobey it altogether. She doesn't do that. You see, she, she receives the abundance of God. He said, you live on the rest. Wasn't it beautiful yesterday? Did you go outside? It was such a beautiful day. It's you know, there's only a couple more days that you're going to be glad you live in South Mississippi, so you better go outside. Because then I'll start preaching on hell, because you're going to think you live there. But it was really nice yesterday, wasn't it? Did you see any birds flying around? Did any of them look hungry to you? Did you look around and you see, did you, 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 you think to yourself, you know, I don't see any starving birds. It's interesting. They don't plant anything. They don't harvest anything. They don't have barns to store anything up, yet they always have enough to eat. Isn't that something? Isn't it something? And God says, see, see, you see what I do, but you, are you not more important than the birds in the air? Do you see the fields with the flowers blooming? Do you see those flowers? Are they spinning? Are they weaving up those beautiful tapestries of color and all? Are they working to create that? No, they don't do that. The details. You see, he takes care of all the details. So that you and I would know that he's going to take care of us. You see, what I'm trying to get you to see is that when adversity meets God, there's no contest. It's not, it's not a contest. No matter how big your problem is, no matter how insurmountable it is, look, it's not a... It, God understands it's a problem for you and me, but it's not a problem for Him. It's not a problem for Him. 
And that's not some name it and claim it theology that's going to create some mental imagery of me and you just believing that God's going to do what we want him to do and he's going to do that because that's the furthest thing from the truth. But what it is is the reality that we serve a God who is active in the details of the lives of his children. Whether we acknowledge or see that or not, he's active and he's aware and he's involved. And this is what I, this is what I think the, the widow is teaching us this Mother's Day. Is that maybe, maybe, maybe you're like most people today. Most people today can sit around and talk for hours and how terrible the world has gotten and what a bad situation we're in. And they can bemoan every detail about politics, about culture, about all the things that are so wrong and so bad and so horrible. But when you ask them, what are you desperate for? What are you desperately crying out to God for? They're silent. They look at you with a deer in the headlights look. Oh yeah, the world is filled with trouble and problems. But what are you desperate for? What are you in your closet with the door shut, crying out to God in dependence over? What are you declaring to everyone you can see? Hey, here's the situation. That we believe that God is an active God. And you know what? He's active in my life. He's active in my neighborhood, at my job, in my community, in my family. And he's active in my nation. And he's active around the world. And that he hasn't taken a day off or gone on vacation. Or he hasn't left the world temporarily for it to go crazy. He's still on the throne. But what are we asking him for? If we stop whining and start praying, God will start moving. Because it's his delight to give you the kingdom. He might just take your little half pitiful empty jar and start pouring into it as you pour it out. Let's ask this question. If we're going to summon God's help or cry out to Him to intervene on our behalf, should we not anticipate His supernatural response? Should we not? Wouldn't that only make sense? How? How could you read this text or any other text in the Bible and come to the conclusion that because your circumstances are bleak, God's left the scene. No. Maybe God wants our attention. Maybe God wants to do something in us that can't be done in comfort. 
Maybe God wants to remind us of His supernatural power and ability to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or think. Let's stand and bow our heads.